You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Kareem Lakani, who is a professor at Harvard Business School and also the co-founder of the Digital Data and Design Institute, or D-Cubed, at Harvard. Welcome, Kareem. Thanks, Greg. Happy to be here with you. Wow. Digital Data and Design. Man, those are three topics that I like a lot and have interviewed a lot of people on all those things. I don't think I've ever seen all three of them together. So kudos for your uh, synthesis, your de of those things. Yeah, in fact, we had a debate, like, is it D3 or is it D-Cubed? Right. And so my co-founder is Vladimir Yasimovich, who's an alum from, our, from Harvard Business School as well. And we debated quite a bit. And so D3 implies linearity. Uh, D-Cubed implies exponentiality. And in many ways, the effect of digital data and design is really exponential. If you do it right, I should also mention you're the co-author of this book called "Competing in the Age of AI," and I, I don't have a copy that I can display at, at the moment. Subtitle is "Strategy and Leadership When Algorithms and Networks Run the World." Now, look I, here in Silicon Valley, I don't know how common it is at, in Cambridge, but we often have folks come from all over the world, and they're like, "Hey, what's the secret here? Right? Like, how do we become digital and use data and everything?" I think for the most part, they want to find some easy way to bolt this technology onto the business that they already have. You know, just like, hey, let's just add it to the organizational architecture that we have and it'll be all good. And they don't really understand, perhaps they still leave not understanding, but hopefully if we've done our job, we've taught them that it's not so simple and that they have to completely reorganize the the, the business, right? They have to reorganize their business model and their operational model. And so I guess the question is, why do you suppose people are reluctant to acknowledge that or, or oblivious to it? Is it because it's just so much darn work that they hope it's not true and they, they don't want to have to deal with it? Or is it because we're not used to it? I, I think all of the above. What I, what I was going to say is I'm having a ton of deja vu these days about the 1990s and when the browser first came out. And if you remember, the earliest uh, application of the internet was, was e-commerce, right? And in the retail sector, there was a, a curious set of companies that decided to go and sell things online. One of them was books. So Barnes and Noble and Borders had e-commerce operations. You could buy books from Barnes and Noble and Borders. Ultimately, in head retrospect, that was not enough for them. Uh, you had to actually be like Bezos and, and Amazon and completely rethink what would happen when a tool, the combination of web browser and web server basically reduced the marginal cost of intermission transmission to zero. Right, Bezos redefined retail by starting from the ground up, and a whole new organizational and a technological architecture was born. And they've kept refining their architectures, both organizational and technical. I think the mistake that most incumbent companies do, the companies that aren't coming from Silicon Valley or that aren't born natively digital, is that they think it's just an atom. Right, they just think we'll just sprinkle this on top and it'll be business as usual. When in fact, Conway's law for the, again, the nerds that are around will know that basically there's a mirroring hypothesis, right? The structure of the technology mirrors the structure of the organization. And if now you have a new architecture for your technology, you need a new architecture for your organization. And I think that people don't understand, first of all. And then even if they get it, the change process required to make it happen is non-trivial. And, and so then people don't commit to it. And also, I think too often, technology decisions were devoid from strategy decisions. And secondly, they were outsourced to the CIO or the CTO who didn't really have a real say at the table, the C-suite table. And that caused problems. And I think that's part of what, what you're seeing now. Yeah, I mean, typically the CIO or the CTO came up through engineering or technical background, whereas the CFO and the CMO and the CEO, those were all 
the business folks. And so the CIO is this guy's, hey, just get this stuff done. And Yes, exactly. Exactly. Why is it so hard? Just do it. And they saw that it's a cost center, not as a enabler of business strategy. Now, I want to go way back in time because, you know, you're at Harvard. And of course, Alfred Chandler, for many years, was sort of dominated the whole, I mean, Harvard's unique, I think, in terms of how much attention it pays to business history, right? And he introduced this notion of structural change, right? With the, the visible hand and the birth of this multi-divisional company, this corporate structure with its silos and, and, and departments and, and so forth. And that was a monumental shift. And I think we're experiencing a shift that's equally monumental. And your book is a start, but if somebody's got to write the new visible hand to describe this transformation that's happening now, right? Absolutely. In fact, here's the thing that I think we should all recognize. And so I did my PhD at the Sloan School of Management. Alfred P. Sloan at General Motors laid the foundation of a multidivisional firm, right? And then Chandler wrote about that, right? Defined it, described it beautifully. Those books are monumental and are still relevant. And if we think about it, over the last hundred years, the multidivisional firm has enabled this built environment that we live in. Right, all the accoutrements of—I'm using such a technical term—accoutrements—all the all the features of the modern world, like what we take for granted, the fact that our plumbing works, our electricity works, our subway systems work, our transportation systems work mostly. But the modern world we live in, the built environment that we live in, has come about because the multi-divisional firm, the firm was established, the multi-divisional firm was established. And that we were able to marshal capital, technology, and people to do productive things. And so this, it's a massive achievement, right? And the shadow of that lives on to today. Most of us live in these multidivisional siloed firms. I think what happened starting in the 2000s was that this new form of firm was emerging where, and it's called the information was power and then everybody hoarded that information in their different divisions, in their different hierarchies and so forth. And what we got to see starting in the 2000s was the rise of this new type of a firm out of Silicon Valley that was set up around a new technology architecture, which demanded that the data flow across the entire enterprise. And as soon as you made that switch and you saw the data and the interactions around the data governed all types of ways your business model was set up and your operating model was set up, you saw this new type of a firm emerge. And I think we've written the first draft of that in our book, trying to make sense of it. But I, 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 think, I think a lot more needs to be done on that. And I do think that it's a, it's a real shift in the ways in which companies have been thought about. Well, the motivation behind both of these phase transitions is the same, right? It's about handling the increase in complexity, except that the increase in complexity that happened in those days was linear. <laughs> now it's, it's exponential, right? So maybe talk a bit about how complexity is ultimately the enemy, right? How, well, not the enemy, but the thing that ultimately leads to the demise of organizations as they increase scale and scope. Yeah, because I think there are two factors that go on, right? There's both technological complexity and also organizational complexity. As we increase scale and scope, we ask the organization to do more and more. And because we feel it's profitable, but it gets slower and slower for the organization to do that. And I think the, my favorite example is the fact that you think about Nokia's consumer business with their phones. You know, in many ways, they invented all the core technologies that Apple then used to create the iPhone. There were the so second with the camera phone, first with the web browser, first with the music phone, first with maps. They had an app store before Apple had an app store, all that stuff. But they were done as silos. They were done as silos. And each division was fighting for its own budget. And each division was its own software and its own thing and so on and so forth. So just imagine the complexity. And then the, what was happening is they pushed the, the mobile phone from a technical device into a consumer device, into a fashion device. And then they basically proliferated that fashion by all the different fancy phones that they had and so forth. But behind each phone was a separate organizational unit, right? And its own ask on the factory resources, on its own ask on marketing dollars, on its own ask of blah, 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 all that kind of stuff, right? 
And then you go, what did Apple do? Apple took all of these existing technologies uh, that Nokia had invented and created a new architecture, which was this new platform called iOS. And what said that these things don't need to be separate. They should all be actually integrated. And we're going to push everything into software. And we're going to then create stuff on software through this one, one phone. That required a whole new different organization than what Nokia had. And so you can imagine the complexity of Nokia trying to do this. And so Nokia was trying to play catch up. And so they started to do more of these things. And very quickly, even Apple realized that they actually had to open up to this broader ecosystem because the, the shift from a consumer device to a lifestyle device, which what the iPhone became and what the smartphone really became, meant that you had to create 100,000 apps, not 10 apps, not 20 apps, not 1,000 apps, not 100 apps, not 1,000 apps, but 100,000 apps and more because the need for my phone to do what I want was way greater than what Nokia could ever serve. And so then they basically hit the complexity wall because there's no way Nokia's existing structure could create 100,000 apps, right? Versus Apple realized, and it was actually consumers that forced Apple. Remember, Jobs was not for, for SDKs. It was only when jailbreaking happened. Remember jailbreaking? They used to break our phones. Then this was sent. Well, he used to hate the ISPs. He thought the ISPs were like parasites. But exactly, right? The complexity of so many apps to be created and the fact that consumers were saying, I'd rather brick my phone and buy a brand new phone than put up with your crappy web apps. Woke them up and said, we better create the SDK. And then the rest is history. So that that's a, like a hopefully an accessible example of as we move to a world where we want more personalization, more individual experiences, more customized experiences, no one company can do it all by themselves. They need a different architecture. And this architecture requires, and then you're in, the, in an exponential phase, right? The five apps, 10 apps, 100 apps, even 500 apps is more linear. When you're starting with five, 10, 100, then go to 100,000, then you're in an exponential world, now to a million and more apps. Now you need a different design of a company, different design of an architecture or technology. And uh, existing companies can't can deal with it. And I think we're seeing the same thing happen in the car industry now too, to some degree. Yeah, I mean, you, you talk about the importance of modularity, and this is something that I spend a lot of time on in, in my classes, right? In my strategy classes and organizational design classes. But I think modularity can mean a lot of different things, right? In General Motors and Ford, they understood modularity. They understood that you need to have right, a transmission and, and, you know, you can have a, even third-party providers and so forth, and there's going to be these interfaces. But it's more than that, right? Because the difference between Ford that has its modules and Tesla that has its modules is not the fact that there's this division of labor and specialization, but that Tesla has a integration function, right? It has a platform that enables you to connect these different modules in, in a different way. And that's why I think it's not enough to simply be a software company. <laughs> there are plenty of, you have to be this company that's designed in this very specific modular way, which is why Amazon would not be Amazon if it weren't for the Bezos memo, right? And you dig into the Bezos memo. So it's not that it's digital native. You talk about how there are companies that used to have, you'd have your CRM, you'd have your ERP, there are all these software tools, but if they can't talk to each other, then you're never going to make that, that next leap, right? Exactly, right? So modularity is necessary, but not sufficient, is what you're implying, right? The integration piece and the mindset of the integration piece matters a ton. Right. Bezos had the, the famous API memo, which is really when I show it to executives, like, what kind of memo is it? And the smart ones go, Oh, that's a this is an org change memo. I'm like, yeah, exactly. This is an org change memo. This is what he's saying. What where information resides, where data resides, and what people need to do. And the story of Bezos is one of integration and constant change of the platform. The platform has changed three times over the last 25 years of, of Amazon. And similarly, Tesla has shown what an integration story looks like in an EV software-driven architecture, which like you can see, I think Kia might have figured it out a bit, but the rest of the auto industry is still struggling. Now, the, the book, of course, is all about AI. The title is about AI. The book's about way more than AI, but the title emphasizes this AI piece. And 
if, if you're like me, you've had all these people come to you and say, oh, wow, now that we have AI, <laughs> they're thinking about chat GPT. You know, the book makes the point that you don't need generative AI, right? You, this is, we're talking about the, the, the kind of AI that you can teach in, at least the concepts that you teach in an initial data science class, like understanding, training and scoring, supervised learning. You can go a long way with that stuff, right? No, exactly. So my friend, Armin McCrutchen at Blackship Pioneering, has this great slide that I borrow all the time in my presentations, which is, lays out the four eras of AI starting in the 1950s, right? So there was a cybernetics era, right? Remember that. Then there was the export systems era. And then there's a good learners era, which started in the 2000s, which is the machine learning era, which is what the Googles, the Amazons, the Facebooks, the Microsofts brought to force, where lots of data, computers getting cheaper, advances in statistics and computer science, we can now do a whole lot of prediction things. And that that has brought a, us up to, you know, 2023, 2022. And a lot of great stuff has happened. And in many ways, you need that infrastructure to go then do the journey of AI on top. And the journey of AI era is, I think, pretty profound and actually very impactful. And we can unpack that a bit later. But the basic building blocks uh, was was needed for you to have good learning systems, machine learning systems, run your organization. That That is two things. It's off the shelves. The blueprint is available. It's not as if there's like big secrets about that. It's well understood in the economy. And it requires, as we're dancing around, this change in the structure of your organization. What's interesting to me is how proprietary know-how or proprietary technologies, those are less important. It's more about proprietary data, right? And your networks. I think the common misnomer, I, I was recently with the CEO of a very large company and I said, the algorithms are off the shelf. Much of it is open source. And companies, when they develop them, they, they open source, like Google will just open source their, their tools. It's crazy, right? And he was stunned. He was really stunned. I go, because what gives you the advantage is your data and your ability to then Connect it to your business value, your value creation, and your value capture, your business model, or your operating model. That's what the advantage is going to be. Uh, we have this concept of this AI factory in our book. And through various case studies that I teach, I draw the AI factory. Oh, you need data. You need a cleaning operation. You need a labeling operation. You need algorithmic development. You need a testing operation and so forth, right? And I go like, what of this is proprietary? What of this gives you a vote? Data, in most cases, Unless you have specialized data, people, most data, let's say in healthcare, not that specialized. You can get access to lots of healthcare in many different ways. Easy to get. Cleaning, that's just grunt work. Labeling, grunt work. Algorithms, off the shelves. Testing and learning, you said experimentation, A-B testing, and you're done. Right? And so the, the trick is not any of those pieces. It's the whole system and your ability to then connect that system to your business model and to keep expanding the, the use cases by which the AI factories built out. And I think that's where I think people misunderstand because they felt like proprietary advantage comes from all of the secret stuff, right? And maybe the only secret stuff really might be your data, but even that is like in many organizations, it's like so siloed that you haven't done the investment and in getting the data together and so forth that you have to be working on it. But really it's to get the flywheel going of the, of the AI factory and expanding its connectivity into your business model and your operating model. Yeah, you say the AI factory is to analytics, industrialization was to manufacturing. So I wonder, part of what I'm interested in, as I'm sure you are, is in business education, how much of the old is, is still relevant, right? I remember when Wharton introduced the digital e-commerce major. Yeah, if you remember that, they, it was a short-lived major, and then they kind of realized, well, hey, this is, this is commerce. When you think about the AI factory, there are still insights from operations that, that are relevant, right? And when I talk about inventory, I'm, I'm thinking about deployments that have not yet been released, right? Software code that's being worked on. And so the whole agile movement is really just an extension of this notion of throughput economies that you get from operations, right? hundred percent. And in fact, look, I'm located in the technology and operations management group. That's my home department is. And what have we done in the last few years. We've hired- You still do the Cranberry case? I know. And we still do Benny Hunt. I'm trying to shoot both of those cases down, but that's the difference. That, that's over several drinks. 
but, but oh, the cranberry case, for those that know, is, is this very famous case of a cranberry operations, national cranberry operations, of course, in Massachusetts, Cape Cod. And what happens to the cranberry harvest? You know, it's all about bottlenecks in the harvesting of the, and the cleaning of these cranberries. Runs terror in, in the hearts of MBA students, at least at HBS still. This is very nasty. And that case, you could actually, as you were just saying, we can take the same context and apply it to uh, onboarding, putting online data centers, right? And the flow of, of hardware. And where, like, how long does it take for you to, in fact, from specking a hardware system to it being live, right? In fact, my colleague Marco said that he'd worked with a company once where the time was 12 months from the time they designed the data center to the time, and it was operational to the time. So if you want to add a new piece of hardware, that spec would take 12 months for it to actually show up in your data center. And that was purely a cranberry problem. It was purely a bottleneck problem and how the, the processes were done. But what we've done in the last while is actually hire people from with computer science and statistics backgrounds. Why? Because we feel like more and more operations are going to be algorithmically driven, right? And so we need our operations people to actually understand how these algorithms actually work and how to integrate into the broader scheme of running a company. And all the way from trustworthy AIs, you believe what the algorithm is telling you to how they integrate with people and what does the machine human interface look like. So we've got experts and computer scientists across all those domains trying to make sense of that. So even our department is now changing because of this. So in many ways, the core knowledge that we teach in the MBA programs isn't going to go away. It's just that application of it to new circumstances become important. The only new thing I would add, and we actually started to do that this year in our program, we uh, launched this year a new data science for managers course. It was optional before, and we said data science in many ways is the new accounting, right? If accounting was an optional course, nobody would take it, but we feel it's necessary for you to understand accounting, to know about how business runs. And now our belief is that data science is the same way. Like you have to, managers and executives need to understand, they don't need to be data scientists. Again, when people come to our schools for MBAs, they don't all want to be accountants. Very few want to be accountants, but they need to understand accounting. And same thing with data science and AI. Well, I'm, I'm completely on board with you on that. I started teaching a data science class over a decade ago, but the problem then was that most of our faculty were still doing econometrics. And so took a while to get it into the curriculum. But do you still teach traditional inference and hypothesis testing and, and all that? It's part of the run-up, exactly. Because you still want A-B testing still matters, right? You have hypothesis and how do you run a proper experiment and that kind of stuff. But then we apply it to like a company like Booking.com runs thousands of experiments a day, right? How is that engine working? And just imagine uh, a company like Booking, which allows anybody in the organization to run any experiment, right? And so that's, again, a technological, like does everybody understand statistics and hypothesis testing and what's a control, what's a treatment and so forth. Guess what? The entire company understands that. And they've built the systems to be able to do that. And it's not just the company, the executives at the highest level know that this is the only way they get the signal they need to be able to get the right Google search terms in front of the customers to click on the ad that then allows them to go to the website to click on the right a set of descriptors of the hotel so they can do the book. Well, now you talk about scale, scope, and learning. And of course, Chandler's book was scale and scope. And when you hear scale, scope, and learning, it's, yeah, learning is pretty obvious, pretty critical, pretty essential. Did we underemphasize it at some point? Why is it not baked in from day one when we think about strategy? Is it because maybe the world is changing faster. And so you could, you know, in the Michael Porter framework, you stumble on a strategy and you can amortize it for 40 years. And, and now you can amortize it for about 40 hours. Is that why we've... Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I think innovation always was oftentimes an afterthought in most organizations, because as you said, you figured out, you stumbled into something good and then you just knocked the heck out of it for a while. And then you were like, okay, let's acquire something else. And because the rate of change was very slow. So while there was lots of innovation scholars back in the 50s and 60s and writing stuff, it wasn't viewed as a core strategic imperative for most organizations. And I think the last 20, 30 years have shown us that this is no longer the case, that the half-life of innovations is shrinking, half-life of value creation can shrink rather fast. And then the only way that the firms will adapt, companies will adapt 
is going to be through as much emphasis as you don't have on scale and scope, you also have on the burning. Now, also, I think the other thing is that that those three things aren't independent things, right? I think your scale and scope can improve through your learning processes. And as you're scaling, you can learn more. They're interconnected. They're not independent. And I think people might have thought of them as independent things. Like you focus in on how to get more and more customers and how to serve them at lower costs. Scope was about offering them many different things. And then maybe you thought about learning. And I think what we said is no, in fact, they're intimately connected and that they all feed back on each other as well. Yeah. I mean, in some sense, your existing scale and scope will lead you to learn things that might help you to adjust your scale and scope. But you can strategically adjust your scale and scope because you want to acquire the information that you think you're going to need, right? And be like the example that sort of always blows me away that we still, even though they've been defanged quite a bit by the Chinese government, is Ant Group, right? Ant Group starts off as a PayPal for Alibaba and starts the payments escrow service, takes a thousand euro technology called escrow and brings it to the digital world. And then very quickly, once they're unshackled from Alibaba and they become an independent company, starts to expand the scope. But the model for expansion of the scope was their data and the learning models that it built around the data because very quickly they saw that they were getting really good information on both consumers and merchants. And once you understood consumers and merchants in their shopping side, you could then offer them banking and credit and savings and insurance and so on and so forth. But that was all being driven by the fact that they were capturing the data and learning some of the data and then saying, this has to increase scope, this has to increase scale and go back and forth as well. It seems like there's a bit of contingency when it comes to the scale and scope of certain companies, right? Like, why doesn't Facebook have a payments <laughs> system that's as robust as, say, Tencent does? It, it's sometimes hard to... Well, they tried. Remember, they, they, were, they tried Bitcoin. They tried Bitcoin. They got smacked down. But the kind of configurations that we see, I mean, look, in strategy class, we talk about, like, I used, we used the Disney case. And we said, if you got this IP, you think of all the different ways you can monetize the IP and, and so forth. And that's going to define the boundaries of the firm. But the boundaries of some of the firms like Google and Amazon and, and Facebook and Microsoft, it's not immediately obvious ex ante. Those are the natural contours of the companies, right? No, I agree. I think part of it is, of course, the context you find yourself in, right? So like, surely Amazon, if they wanted to, could become a bank. But the regulatory apparatus in the U.S. for banking is, and the hurdles are way higher than they were in China, Frank Group, for example. I think you have to give credit to Zuckerberg. He did good efforts on Libra, and then he got messed up with the whole, what, you're going to create your own currency? You're more people than any one country combined? What? No way. So then the, the state actors came in and stopped them in many ways. But they had, certainly had the vision for it. And so what's interesting to me now, if you look at Amazon, like even cloud was, would not have been what you would anticipate a retailer to go into, but it made sense for them because they had, and then they could t- take a big bet on it and, and make it happen. Andy Jassy, the current CEO, started their cloud business, right? And so AWS was started by Jassy in many ways. The big bet around healthcare is interesting. I heard Scott Galloway, the professor at NYU, say that I think there are more people that are Amazon Prime members in the U.S. than go to church on Sundays. And that gives them a lot of entry, right? And so is healthcare the place to play? Because they've bought a pharmacy and healthcare in many ways is broken. And maybe they can, I love a Amazon healthcare delivery system, right? Because at least returns will be fast. I'd make faster appointments. All my data will be in the one place. I'll be consolidated. I can search at any time. I'm whatever I want, price compare, all those things that we care about. So we'll see if they, you know, they make a a successful dent in this or not. Uh, There have been lots of bodies before who tried to make a dent in the healthcare system that haven't been able to. But to your question, contingency, I think absolutely, because I, I do think that the executives respond to their local environment and then say, given the assets I have, what, what else could I do next? Amazon's primary asset is Prime now, right? And remember when Prime came out, people were like, wow, this sounds stupid. They're going to lose money, like free shipping. For $49. I, I milked it. Right. <laughs> As- I milked it like a ton. But now you're addicted, right? Now it's what, 120 bucks or whatever it is, right? And- oh man, if I need new 
tooth floss. It's like one click. I don't even give it a second thought. Like the idea of going down to Walgreens, why would I, <laughs> why would I ever go to Walgreens, right? Right. And so this is the thing that they stumbled onto Prime as a way to drive locking. Yeah. Now they're the number one shipper and they just surpassed UPS and, and FedEx. Yeah. It, it came about as a result to stop multi-homing, right? And then they capture you. They subsidize you initially. You're captured. Now you're not going to switch. And But now you have this relationship that they also give you video, they give you music, and they can start to do additional things with you. And so that's, I think, the interesting thing that, that they've stumbled on. And the question becomes, how can they keep within the context of a U.S. regulatory and competitive FTC environment, how they can keep, keep expanding their scope. Yeah, and I think the genius of this new organizational model is that it is, you don't need to know ahead of time what your business model or your operation model actually is. Did Amazon know they're going to be in the delivery business? You know, did they know they were going to do third-party selling? No. And, you know, they didn't have a five-year Gantt chart to figure it out. And they didn't bring in Accenture to design the transition strategy. It's like you have the APIs and, and if, if things start shifting this way, great. If they start shifting that way, great. And I have a former student who started a fintech and it was a B2C and he got a phone call and after a couple hours with his engineers, B2B and then it became a unicorn. And it was like one weekend he was able to completely change the business model and quadruple the value of the company, right? It's astonishing how quickly you can move when you organize this way. Amazing. It is remarkable. Does that mean there's less of a role for strategy and more in strategy, right? We've got the external, we've got the internal. If you design the organization so that it's capable of learning, does that mean that you don't have to do as much uh, strategy? Look, I think you, you need to know the basis. You understand differentiation. You need to understand the basis, right? Okay, are you focused on quality? Are you focused on price? You got to understand those things, right? I think any good business person needs to know those distinctions. I'm actually surprised, like in the book, we talk about business model. We say, oh, it's value creation, value capture. And I have to tell you, Greg, many people like take down these notes. I'm like, wait, this is like micro econ 101. Did you not learn this? This is what a business is. Like, there's a value creation angle or the value capture angle. I'm not, this is not my new invention. You sell stuff for more than it costs to make it, <laughs> right? <Yes. laughs> exactly. See, raise and see. And I literally write down this equation and go, this is all we're saying here, guys, right? Now there's more ways to create value and there's more, that's your business model. That's your strategy, right? So you've got to understand those things. So I do think that you, you, you need the basics. I think the question becomes how dynamic are these processes now, right? So if, if we believe that there's time compression, there's half-life is shrinking, the agility to be able to keep the foundational knowledge, but the agility to, to update your priors, be like a radical Bayesianist in some ways, I think is the key thing. The other thing that Greg, I have to say is, you know, I read a lot of science fiction. And so there, there's often this view of parallel worlds and that kind of stuff. There's certainly a lot of physics today is arguing for these multiverses and so forth. And such a sci-fi story. Maybe we are living, Greg, in, in two parallel worlds, right? There's the digital worlds, like your student who can pivot and get it and get going and create tremendous value for, for, for customers, for the company, for the shareholders, for the employees, for the customers and so forth. And then there's the other parallel world where we're still stuck in the fifties and we're like plodding long and we're like, we see, we, we get glimpses and shadows of this other world. And we're like, oh, what is that? Oh, what is that? And and we, but we can't switch to this other multiverse. I don't know. I, maybe I'm reading too much science, science fiction. But, but in a way that there's, you know, you talk about the collision between the kind of linear and the exponential. In some sense, though, they can be complementary, right? You know, Airbnb is an operating system, but there's still got to be people who are cleaning, changing the beds and stuff, right? But, and, but they can, they're going to, yes, Airbnb is going to be massively profitable because of the, economies of, of scale there, but, but they also enhance the value of the, the non-digital world because the non-digital world now makes it easier for them to, to match with the buyers and, and so forth. So yeah, do all the transactions. Yeah. And create a whole ecosystem that now everybody needs a cleaner to come in and clean up after the mess has been left by their Airbnb Absolutely. So it has created demand for more services that way as well. And the bits and the atoms and uh, the atomic world as they play in the electron electronic world. Yeah, 
Absolutely. But I just wonder, Greg, like the question I have, uh, let me ask you this question. It's a puzzle, no? Like, again, this example you gave of the student. I have a similar story with one of my students who has a dental AI company. I'm an investor in it as well, former student. And what he's been able to do in five years is incredible. And he's just got this flywheel going, this company that's just scaling like crazy and having real impacts. I think they're going to become, if they're not already the largest deployment of AI in healthcare, if you think about the industry there as a, as a healthcare business, which it is in five years time. And it, it seems unreal when you compare it to the counterfactual of existing companies in that same space. So I almost wonder, is it that there is a multiverse and there's new laws of physics in that world versus this world? Or is it, I don't know how to think about it, actually. I love your thoughts on it. I like to tell everybody, oh, every company's got to be a software company. And, and uh, sometimes people say every company's got to be a platform company. But you can be a platform or an app. Or you can be both, right? Google's obviously both platform and app, but there are, you can just be a pure app, right? And still do well, as long as you interface well with the different platforms, right? Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Now, one of the questions I have is, you know, Conway's law, I, I love Conway's law, and I talk about it a lot in my class about the need for complementarity between organizational design and your, your product map, et cetera. But is there a, a third piece here, which is the, the cultural one? Is it, do we need to think about the culture? Is there a need to have different kinds of people, right? If you're going to have a learning organization, do you have to have learning people or can the people be the same folks, right? What a great insight. So if I think about this logically, so we're saying like the new technological architecture requires a new organizational architecture, which would imply as an outcome, a new culture as well, right? A new culture is needed in this new setup. And we see this, like my two, two things hit me, like Tadal Neely, my colleague, co-wrote a book called The Digital Mindset, which sort of argues this cultural change part of what you need to do to, to have the, the digital mindset. They have a, with Paul Leonardi, they have a really nice 30% rule of what you need to understand and so forth. But there's a real, there's a real oral culture story embedded within there. And they're both OB scholars. And then Andy McAfee just had a new book come out about geek culture as well. And I wonder if it's like, if that's like a derivative, if it's an input or an output. The Marxian view would be it's like superstructure, right? And I have a, a, a lot of companies and students say, okay, if you want to have a data-driven culture, do you start with the culture? And my view is if you go stand up in front of the organization and say, we're a data-driven culture, and then people are like, okay. And then they go to try to do something and it's like, well, nothing works, right? And everything is by facts. Everything is by facts. Yeah. Like all my columns are in different data files. Like how am I supposed to do this? Then that you lose all credibility. I did a project for one company that I'll leave unnamed and they brought me in to do data science for their IT team. They took a whole bunch of data scientists, sent them off to learn about data science and they came back and they couldn't do anything. So they all quit. Because the architecture wasn't set up. Not only the organizational architecture, but like the data architecture was not set up in a way that enabled them to do any data science. Yeah, no, exactly. And you know, what I see often is CEOs go to Davos. They get the AI bug. Okay, we're going to hire AI people. We need AI, AI. We need AI magic everywhere. So they go to Stanford, they go to Berkeley, they go to MIT, they go to Harvard, Caltech, they hire all the PhDs in AI and a million dollars a year or whatever, try to compete with Google to hire AI scientists. And then what are the AI scientists end up doing? A, they end up quitting in a couple of years time. But why do they quit? Well, because their job is to be a data engineer because the data story is so terrible inside of their companies, right? And then you basically have to sit there and have meeting after meeting after meeting, bringing the lawyers, right? Who owns this data? Where's this data? Can you email me the spreadsheet? That's all they do. And so you're absolutely right. Like you can, it's not credible when a CEO stands up and we're a data, we're a data driven culture. When in fact, data is hoarded, data is a mess. It's garbage in, garbage out in these organizations and they haven't done the homework. Yeah. I mean, cause you talk a lot about Microsoft and I know Marco has done a lot of work with, with Microsoft, but I was just talking to Bob Seton recently and he was talking about the cultural shift, right. That happened that Satya said, we're not only going to change the organization, we're going to we're going to change the culture and did them simultaneously. And so I'm wondering, you, you also talk about GE. 
I, I used to teach that case, the, the GE case, right? I used to hold up GE as the shining example, right? And I used to be like, they, they get it, right? Like, and Bill Rube used to come and speak at Berkeley and stuff. But they really, they, that, that whole thing was a disaster. What can we learn from that? Yeah. So I think, and it was interesting that I, I'd met all the key principals there and they really believed the story. They really did. And they invested in the story too. But I think this goes back down to the structure and incentives. It was set up, G Digital was set up in a separate business unit. It was asked to become a for-profit business. And then immediately got into conflicts with all the other BUs. Like, why would the healthcare business work with you? Why would the aerospace business work with you? Whose customer is it? And all the pissing matches that happens when you have inner BU rivalry around the same customer. So they would have a transfer price or... You would add, oh God, but not the, the way it would share that you like fighting over, over customer access. Is Boeing aircraft engines customer or there's a call on them? Like who's going to keep the revenue credits for that and so forth. And so I do think that good old incentives came in the way and or design came in the way of what was truly a visionary strategy. They got it. They understood it. The separate P&L structure really hurt them. They made some bad technological choices, but I don't think that those were fatal, to be quite honest. I, I really believe that the P&L structure really hurt them. Uh, so I, I do think that, that that was purely, the board got it, CEO got it, the C-suite got it, but then I think the design, again, the or design story came in. Now, of course, a lot of the book is about networks. Where should we be teaching networks? I mean, I teach it in my, my strategy class, but the strategy class is getting a little overloaded. <laughs> it's got to do a lot of work. Do we, should we just have an entire class, just a whole class just on networks and, and how they work? Do you do that in the operations group at, at, at Harvard? Yeah, I think there's like a, we do a little bit in our ops class as well, but I don't think anybody does a really good job with it, to be quite honest. And I almost think that, you know, like of a new course on leading with AI or something like that, where we build in a bunch of these concepts anyway. So just for reinforcing, because I often find, you know, what's surprising to me, Greg, is that how much people in these platform businesses with network effects don't understand network effects. Like I've talked to people at, you name the platform company in Silicon Valley, really senior executives in those companies. And I go, you know, you have direct network effects. And they're like, look at me. Like they understand a little bit of this, but they actually can't explain the dynamics of it. Well, well now if you pitch to a VC, they're gonna, that's going to be the question. Yes. Yeah, what are your network effects? And so everybody's going to say, oh, there's network effects. But you point out the difference in YouTube and, and, and Netflix, for instance. I mean, everyone thinks, oh, same thing, digital. But no, the, the, the network effects are, are, are very different. Yeah. But Marco and Feng Zhu have done some great, you know, Feng Zhu has these great cases on all the different types of network effects that can exist and what they actually mean. I've learned a ton by reading his papers and his cases and teaching his cases. And he's actually built an amazing simulation that allows you to build, run a, a platform business and compete with somebody else's platform business. And you put into different worlds. You're in a world where there's lots of multi-homing and no and weak network effects or low multi-homing and, and strong network effects, direct network effects to sort of see, see what, what would you do and how would you do that? I do believe in many ways, I do think that the network effect story was complete on its own in the 2000s and 2010s. But now I think it's like network effects with data and with AI. And that's why I'm thinking this leading with AI course has to have uh, a primer on network effects because that's the, because as you're getting, part of the exponential story is as you're getting more and more data from your increasing returns business, right? You can then apply it to a whole bunch of different things. That's why when we wrote the book, the book was going to, we had so many different names for the book and we tried to write the book so many different times and somebody else wrote the book that we were trying to write. We were going to call the book, The Graph Economy. <laughs> I mean, still love that name, but we both thought it was, I think only sell five copies or something. It was called The Graph. You, you would buy one for sure, I know, Greg, but uh, not many other people would buy The Graph Economy book. I'll buy it no matter, I don't care what it's called, I'm gonna buy it. But the reason why we say it is like when algorithms and networks rule the world, the age of AI came about from platform companies. They were sitting on a pile of data. They were sitting on a pile of compute. And they're like, there's no way Uber can run itself as a traditional taxi business. There's no way Google can run itself as a traditional auction house. You had to be set up in a very different way. 
And that's where the AI stuff. And so I think I see them as being inexorably linked. And as you were saying, even if you're not a platform company, you're going to be playing in a platform world. So you got to understand how you're going to fit in, how you do multi-homing, how you're going to actually prevent, how you're going to think about your data strategy if you're multi-homing across different platforms and so on and so forth. So that's how they're, I see them as being linked. They're separate concepts, but they're co-occurrence and exponential value you get in combining them together, I think, uh, begs, at least, at least from my, in my mind, that they should be put, put together. Now, look, ChatGPT is the latest generation of AI, and it, it just accentuates the questions that you've already been asking, right? In particular, what's the appropriate division of labor between humans and algorithms? And the other is what data is going to be made proprietary? So the initial generation of uh, Gen AI, it, it's been able to leverage the fact that there's just this enormous amount of data that's in the public domain. Do you think we'll see a fragmentation of that data as companies start to build these walls around their data repositories? Will, will the next Gen AI, I mean, will be, you'll have this Gen AI API on the back end, and then you'll be able to build these proprietary solutions built on the functionalities? I think a few things. Let me answer your question first, and then I'll give you my framework about what Generative AI is doing as well. I'm not an unbiased observer in this. I'm you know, on the board of Mozilla Corporation. We just set up, as part of our foundation efforts, set up, set up Mozilla.ai with the belief that heterogeneity in large language models, both large and small large language models, will, will be needed going into the future. So we're working actively to create an open source view of, of Generative AI systems and actively working to build the infrastructure forward and the systems forward and so on and so forth to, to make this available to the rest of the world. And so with that lens and with that disclaimer, what I imagine is that we will be living in an end world where these large language models that exist from Google, whatever Google gets back together and actually releases something credible, Bard and Palm so far not that credible, but you look at GPT, you four, you look at Claude from Anthropic, even Llama from Facebook, which is the open source version, there will be a place for those large language models because they are able to do a lot with surprising capabilities. Like we, these models weren't trained to excel in LSAT, but they can't. Or excel in GMAT, but they can't. So I what I imagine is that Companies as part of their AI factory will be evoking, depending on the task, different types of large language models for the, for the, for the tasks at hand. So for some functions, because the data is sensitive, might have AI, you might have a private model inside that interacts with the broader one, but it doesn't, but doesn't go across. Some will build on top of it, and some might even, I imagine a world where, where depending on the use case, you might even have different agents representing different models, collaborating or competing to solve the problem. And that doesn't seem that far away, to be quite honest. Do you think we'll have more of these kind of deep vertical specializations or will there be an, or will it be an advantage to, you know, agglomerating stuff from across different domains? Yeah. I think both. And so then the question of data strategy becomes quite interesting. So here's a personal choice I face these and I am no anticipation of this world, but I'm glad I did this. So I, I became academic because of open source and Creative Commons and that kind of stuff. And so as soon as the publishers allowed you to put your stuff in Creative Commons licenses, I would buy out the copyrights from the publishers from our academic journals. And so most of my papers are in the Creative Commons. And what am I doing? I'm making sure that all my papers are uploaded into Claude, into Llama, into GenAI, into uh, OpenAI's ChatGPT because I want them to print off what I've written, right? And so the interesting conundrum that companies will face is if your data and your point of view is not in these large language models and they become the place where people begin their work, do you even exist? It's a new form of bias, right? So it's the training data is going to be biased in favor of the folks who are pushing their product into the public domain. Those could be people with agendas, right? And your agenda is to make sure that people receive your wisdom. There's going to be other folks that have a different view of wisdom. Exactly. Oh, I, or <laughs> like their hubs. Exactly. And, but this faces an existential crisis for all the publishing houses that are attached to universities. Because right now, Berkeley has a press. HBS is a massive press. 
we have a lot of press. Should we put our stuff in those systems? And I say, yeah. Why would we curtail the world not knowing from our knowledge? But it smacks right against our business model of making money. And maybe we'll create our own, and we will, a Harvard Business School bots. We'll create many bots. But those bots will never have the scale and will in the end be discriminatory to our knowledge mission as educators, as scholars. Like society gives us this license to pick on, to work on topics that we care about, change topics that we want, in return for us disclosing that knowledge to the rest of the world. Why would we create a business model on top of it that prevents it? And now that this world, this new tool is available, why would we stop that from being available? But you can imagine the the discussions in the dean's offices, in the provost offices, in the board of directors for these presses about, oh my God, all of our knowledge is being stolen. The same dilemma is going to happen in, in outside of companies. And what is your data strategy? What will you select and reveal? What will you keep private? What will give you an advantage or not? And so I don't know if any B-School right now, any strategy course has any module on data strategy today. I don't think they do. Well, I, I used to teach a course called data strategy. But oh, geez, Greg, I need to see that course. <laughs> right. But Greg, it's not all MBA programs. That's not, it's not canonical now in MBA curriculum, right? Like that might be an elective course, right? Not a foundational course. It's elective. Yeah, it's elective. I mean, foundation, we still do Apple and Intel and Coke and Disney. And- yeah. Coke and Pepsi. Like, are you kidding me? Okay. I don't think Claude and OpenAI is Coke versus Pepsi. I don't think so. Right. I don't think so. I don't. Could be, maybe this little brand story there, I don't know. But look, you said it in the book that if you don't recognize the threat of these exponential models early enough, then you know, you know, you're going to be in trouble. And so we know about this term technical debt. Should we be thinking in terms of organizational debt? If you don't set up the organization in the right way and you just keep trying to patch it and patch it, you're just increasing the cost of the transformation and you got to do what Jeff Bezos did and just get that memo out. I mean, I think so. I really think so. Mickey Mikitani. CEO of Rakuten has said that the ability to change your organization is going to be an advantage that companies have. And he believes that's a skill. That's a learned skill, an acquired skill. And that hopefully curtails the organizational debt that you're mentioning. Absolutely. Yeah. I think someone said all management now is change management. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And my joke now is change management, but a comma after change. Yeah. Kareem, thanks so much. We could talk all day. I, I, I do at some point want to learn more about what you guys are, are teaching over there at, at, at Harvard so I can beg, borrow, and, and steal whatever I need to. Take all of it. Take all of it. Yeah. So I'm yes. um, like hitting you up for your, your syllabi. This site has a lot. That's all I care about. <laughs> oh, yeah. Will do. But great chatting. Hopefully, we'll chat again soon and get another book out. Update the book and we'll read it. <laughs> Thank you, Greg. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.